0: Okay. Greetings, everyone. Welcome. My name is Paul Phillips. I'm the pastor of Christ Community Church here. want to uh, just give you a few uh, things to think about, uh, maybe some resources. Uh, but first, uh, make sure your phone is off. That'd be a good thing for you to do. Not that anybody hasn't already turned their phone off, I can tell, in the crowd. But just in case... Uh, just a couple of resources that you might know of, or if you don't, would be helpful to you, and uh, I don't know if Erwin will say anything about them, but they have a connection to the topic. Uh, probably the best book that I've read, and, and you can ask Erwin in the Q&A, um, just about how things got where they are in the evangelical faith and the divide between black-white is a book called Divided by Faith. It's kind of an older book, probably 15, 20 years old, and it's not a, it's not a novel. Uh, so it's more just like here's, here's how things got to where they are. And I found it very helpful, and I think you would find it helpful. Secondly, uh, there's a great, really, a really great book. This is one of my favorite all-time books called The Warmth of Other Suns, The Warmth of Other Suns. And it's about the, a great American migration, And six million people from 1915 to 1970, six million African-American people moved out of the South, sort of L.A., Chicago, New York. And it's the greatest migration that's ever happened in America. And it explains a lot about what happened, the emptying out of the resources in the South, and also how you got all these black communities in these cities and uh, I didn't read the book. I've got audio book. And I can tell you it was my favorite. I just couldn't get out of my car. Uh, it, because it's a story, like I wouldn't want to hear this on audio book. I'd go to sleep. Uh, but she just is telling three narratives about three different people going to three different cities. And I could just listen to it over and over again. She's, a be- she's got a beautiful voice very captivating, and the story itself is very interesting. And that has a connection to Irwin because his mother and grandmother were part of the great migration out of Wilmington to New York, and he'll say more about that. So it's something that it's not like a story you read long ago. It's part of Irwin's story right here. I'm going to read you the little poem, which is where the uh, title of the book came from. A uh, black poet, Richard Wright, I was leaving the South to fling myself into the unknown. I was taking a part of the South to transplant in alien soil to see if I could grow differently, if I could drink of a new and cool rains, bend in strange winds, respond to the warmth of other suns, and perhaps bloom. not that a great little poem? I'm try- I-, I can't bloom here which is a real sad part of the history. And there may be another sun, another soil that I can bloom in. The, you probably have at least some awareness of the a coup in, that happened in Wilmington in 1898. If you don't, you must know something about it because it's a, it has a massive gravitational effect on our city even today. A book was just produced this year. I mean, just this, like in January... The title of it is called Wilmington Lie. That's the title of it. Uh, It's a pretty substantial book. I have not read it, but you could go online, Wilmington Lie, and there's a, oh, look at that. Thank you, my friend. Right here. All right. Um, And if this just seems intimidating to you, and some of you are like, oh, my gosh, uh, then there's a a PBS. Uh, You can just go on uh, Google. And there's a, probably a 20-minute interview with the author. And that gives you, the, like, the smallest little clip that I think will whet your, ap- whet whet your appetite to say, maybe I want to get the book. But if that's all you do, you can go look at that tonight. And if you don't know anything about that, that can give you a lot of information. But in 1898, Wilmington was was the most populous city in North Carolina. It was the most progressive city in North Carolina. It was 50. 56% African-American, many people on the city council, many people in prominent business roles, newspaper, those kinds of things. The coup happened, and now there's 15% African-Americans in Wilmington. And there wasn't an elected official in Wilmington from 1898 to 1972. So that, that marker in 1898 still has effect today today. Now, a lot of us don't feel it because we don't see it. But if you could get into the skin of another brother, you would feel it and see it. And you would say, so that's why we have a hollowed-out black middle class currently in Wilmington. If you talk to a young person who goes to a college, let's say at UNC Charlotte, and they're African-American, and you say, are you going to come back to Wilmington? Almost all the time they're going to say, no, I'm not coming back to Wilmington because I just don't see an educated class of folks like that in Wilmington, like I do in Charlotte, like I do in Raleigh, like I do in Atlanta. And that's from 1898, because they would have been able to see it at that point. So it has a big effect, and it's really worth, since you live in Wilmington, it's a good story, period, but since you live in Wilmington, you really have to know something about that. So I just wanted to let you know about those three things. Let me pray for us. Lord, we come here tonight just trying to understand First, understand you, understand what your plan is, what your goal is, what you're you're moving us to, and then we want to understand what our role is, and whatever that is, we don't want history or our own sin or the sins of the past to hold us back from your plan. So would you strengthen us, encourage us, come alongside of us, pull us, push us, whatever it requires, so so thankful for Irwin and his life from New York to now Washington, D.C., and for this evening here in Wilmington. Would you bless him with your divine wisdom and strength to communicate to us in a way that as he leaves, uh, we have something to, some hook to hang on to, something to do. That really comes from your lips. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Irwin, I just met him last night. We had a three hour dinner at the oceanic as we watched the waves roll yeah. in. And I feel like he's my friend now. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so we had a pastor's group meeting this afternoon yeah. with several pastors, which was excellent. And then tonight's forum, the idea was for him to just come and talk to us about what he sees from the biblical mandate, what he sees in terms of our current culture, and what he sees churches specifically here that can do to make uh, movements in the right direction. That'll take about 40 minutes or so, and then we're going to have a Q&A. So you'd be thinking, hey, I got a question, write it down somewhere. I'm just going to hand you the microphone so it's not going to be pass me the card or anything like that. And if somewhere in the hour and a half you've got to go to the bathroom, there's no halftime. So you just got to go and come back, all right? (laughs) So you're all on your own. Welcome, Erwin (laughs) Inns. Thanks. Thanks.
1: Well, good evening, you all. Uh, It is uh, really... A joy um, to be here in Wilmington, to be with you all. I'm grateful for uh, the invitation. And I'll say up front that, that I've got far too much material to fit in 40 minutes. So at a certain point, I'm just going to stop and, and, and cut it off uh, and move to the, to the Q&A. Uh, because I do get animated about this is a passion of mine. It's an issue of what I call the beautiful community. Um, unity and diversity, image, identity, community uh, in Jesus Christ. And um, and I have a core ministry conviction. Um, It's this, centered around this idea of the ministry of reconciliation. That the ministry of reconciliation as demonstrated in the local church By the gathering of people from diverse backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities is the natural outworking of a rich biblical and theological commitment. And what I mean is that if we are are able to see in the scriptures where God is committed to taking the world, including humanity, then we are compelled to pursue reconciliation in the here and now. Let me tell you just a bit about how I got to this, uh, this point. As Pastor Paul said, um, uh, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Um, my story is, though, uh, deeply and intimately com- uh, connected to the great American migration. My grandmother uh, was born here in Wilmington in 1916. Uh, my mother is one of six. Uh, she's the third in the line. She was born in 1937. And, um, you know, Pastor Paul mentioned the coup of 1898. So, right, Nana was born 18 years after uh, that coup that ch- drastically changed uh, Wilmington uh, into uh, generations and generations. And so um, my grandmother decided, like, I have to leave um, uh Family lived in poverty, um, saw education as the way out. My grandmother um, ended up getting her GED when she was in New York, but she left um, left Wilmington in 1947, um, two years after the war ended. Um, left Wilmington, uh, told, um, told her kids that she's got to go away for a little while, um, and that uh, that they would be able to follow eventually. And so my mother uh, left uh, in 52. She was 15 when, um, you know, they might go visit Nana in Harlem in the summers, but um, she still couldn't afford to kind of have them all all there. Uh, but my mother's uh, always been a go-getter. And so she just got tired of being without mama. And so she, uh, she told me, she told me, she said, yeah, I took two days off of school that spring. I told everybody because she's staying with relatives. And I went to the field. She could cut flowers and sell them, right, and saved up her money to get a one-way train ticket to New York City and went up there. And so so this is why I'm a New Yorker <laughs> um, because that's where my, my parents met and And so, I was raised in the church, United Methodist Church in Brooklyn. Um, I began to uh, to reject Christianity during my teen years, my high school years. I began a a passive rejection, and what I mean is football was more important on Sundays than jesus and so passive rejection, but by the time I got to college went to college in Harlem, City College of New York to study electrical engineering, and there I got immersed in uh, what I referred to as the radical black nationalism movement, Uh, Afrocentricity. I was deeply um, rooting myself in a very racialized worldview, and, and, and I became hostile to Christianity, viewing it as the white man's religion, viewing it as a tool that was used by oppressors, to oppress and enslave people of African descent. And so, um, you know, obviously I didn't stay there cuz here I am. <laughs> I'm going to cut the story short. But when uh my wife and I got married in 1992, she's from Brooklyn as well. Um a couple years after that, we moved down to the DC area for work, and we started attending a historically uh black uh, Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., because my wife had some relatives at that church. And it was through that, going to church and some young adult Bible studies with my doubts about Christianity, that the Lord kind of showed up and just brought both myself and my wife to a professor of faith in Jesus Christ and set us on this trajectory. And so here's the thing. Now I'm looking at the scriptures with clear eyes. <laughs> And I'm seeing something in Scripture, and I'm seeing that my eternal family are all those to whom I'm united by faith in Jesus Christ. And then, but then I said, "Well, I go to church, and everybody's black. (laughs) I go to church over there; everybody's white over there. Everybody's Asian, Latino over there. Wait a second! I'm looking at Scripture, and I'm seeing this 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 family, I'm, seeing, I'm hearing Apostle Paul say, uh, there's neither Jew nor Greek, uh, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And I'd say, I don't see it <laughs> worked out in the church. And that gave me, to borrow this phrase from Dr. King, a divine dissatisfaction that I had to press into. And so this is why, this is where this core conviction comes from. Um, because i I believe that we are called to pursue this reconciliation in Jesus name as a testimony to the world here 's uh the apostle Paul Ephesians chapter one he says uh, this long run on sentence these eleven uh, verses three to eleven blessed." Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Here it is making known to us the mystery of his will. In Christ, God the Father has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time. Okay, Paul, what is God's will, the mystery that's been revealed uh, uh, for the fullness of time? The apostle says to unite all things in Jesus Christ, to sum up everything in Jesus Christ things in heaven and things on earth. Now, right? Now, what does Paul then end up doing then, right? All right? He starts talking about salvation in chapter 2. By grace you've been saved. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one may boast. And then he goes on to say, uh, uh, here it is. Look, you know, Reformation. And uh, by the end, he had a dual meaning. He meant the goal, the goal of Protestantism, he argued was the end of Protestantism, saying that the Reformers weren't trying to start another branch of the church. They were just trying to call the church back to faithfulness to the word of God. And so he said this in an interview. He says, the church is a sign of a cosmic unity that all things are summed up in Christ. And the church is to be the visible communion of human beings that anticipates that ultimate union of all things in Christ. It's a living sign a community where that unity is already experienced in some degree. And he says this is, in some respects, the whole point of redemptive history, the history of redemption from Genesis, from the fall to Revelation to glory. The whole point is that God is going to knit back the human race in his son. And he says when the church fails to be that proleptic reality, I had to look that word up because I didn't know what. <laughs> and what he's saying is that word is an image. It's, it's like a forward-facing mirror. What he's saying is you should look at the church and get a picture of where God is taking the world. He says when the church fails to be that reality of, as he says, the eschatological, the end-time union of all things in Christ, we are very deeply failing in the calling that we've been given. And so this is, this is a driver um, for me, and so I want to talk uh, about a couple more things. I want to say three things one let 's talk about the God that we image i 've been captivated by this notion in recent years, just the beauty of God that, that God is beautiful i don 't have time to kind of flesh all of that out, but but this is um, this is the right the foundational Um, confession for the people of Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5, where the Lord has Moses tell the people of Israel, hear, O Israel, or even obey, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Um, the lord says and and so what is what does it mean that the Lord is one All right, it means certainly it's a declaration of monotheism there is one God, but it's more than that it is an it, it is a statement of the unity and simplicity of God, and what I mean is this um, you know you'll have uh You know, if you Google like living the simple life, right, you'll get all these hits about how to simplify your life. Like, make, you gotta declutter. You gotta declutter your house. You gotta declutter your relationships. You gotta declutter everything. If you wanna be happy, declutter, simplify. Well, essentially, God has no decluttering to do. All he is is necessary for him to be who he is. Lose any attribute or aspect of him, and he's no longer God. God is beautiful and he's simple, not simplistic, but it's most profoundly seen this way, in his life eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God revealed in three persons. This is a reflection of the image of of the reality of God's beauty, right, as uh, I won't read all of these statements, but The Trinity reveals God to us as the fullness of being, the true life, eternal beauty. In other words, in God, too, there's unity and diversity, diversity and unity. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, and the Son. Yet they're the one God in three persons. This is um, quoting here from a... Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bavink, where he says, uh, in among us, unity exists only by attraction, by the will and by the disposition of the will. It's a moral unity that's fragile and unstable. He's saying, you, you, know, look, at, you look at humanity, where you see unity among us normally is just by attraction. We are with the people we're attracted to for whatever reason who we want to be with. Right? You will hear this in... The sports world, right, I mean, right, the Chiefs just won the Super Bowl last weekend, and right, in the interviews. We were all on the same page from training camp, right? We were united together (laughs) for this one goal of winning the championship, right? Well, that unity they had for this year has got to be refabricated for next year. It doesn't last. (laughs) They got to go back and and do it again, right? Unity among us is fragile and unstable, but not so with God. In God, both are present. He says, absolute unity as well as absolute diversity. And we hear this in the scriptures. We hear it, right, in the baptism of Jesus in the Gospels. And like in Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is baptized and immediately, right, uh, says he went up from the water and, behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending upon him like a, a dove and coming to rest on him and a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter begins his uh, first epistle saying Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter is writing... To Christians who are enduring persecution, who are suffering greatly, and he encourages them at the very outset of his letter, saying, Do you understand that you have all of God for all of you, Father, Son, and Spirit? You are in this position according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, for the sancti- in, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and our God is beautiful." Beautiful community. This is the second bullet, and I'll move on. The concurrence of the three persons of the Trinity and all that they do is a profound indication of their unity. There's no conflict in the Trinity. The three persons are perfectly agreed on what they should do and how their plans should be executed. They support one another, assist one another, and promote one another's purposes. This Intra-Trinitarian deference, this disposability of each to the others may be called mutual glorification. There's no conflict, perfect unity, perfect diversity. What about us? What about us? What about us, the image of God? God's beautiful image. The God that we worship is beautiful community. What about us? The first thing God says about humanity, right, Genesis 1, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, right, that we are image bearers. And what does this declaration of image mean? It means at least two things. One, each individual person has immeasurable dignity, value, and worth because of God's declaration. We're each image bearers. No matter what race, ethnicity, no matter what abilities, there is an inherent dignity in being an image bearer. Humanity has a unique place in God's created world. We are creatures of immeasurable dignity. Richard Pratt, a professor and author, he wrote this in his book, Design for Dignity, he said at one point in his book, he says, I want you to go up to the next person. The next person you go up to, I want you to reach out your hand and shake his or her hand and greet them with these words, hello, your majesty. You are you are in the presence of royalty when you're in the presence of another human being. Nona Verna Harrison in her book God's many splendid image says that Genesis 126, the word dominion speaks of royalty, which is a facet of the divine image in every human person. It involves dignity and splendor, a legitimate sovereignty rooted in one's very being. And she says, because everyone is made in the image of God, and because this image defines what it means to be human, people are fundamentally equal regardless of differences in wealth, education, and social status. And then she says the church preached this countercultural message in the ancient world and still preaches it today. In other words, this has always been the fundamental equality of every human being has always been the countercultural message of the people of God. We didn't always live into it. But it's always been God's message to us to communicate to the world, not just with our lips, but with the way we treat one another. A fundamental equality. Dr. King put it this way in 1965 at Ebenezer Baptist Church. He says, the whole concept of the Imago Dei, the image of God, it's the idea that all men have something within them that God injected, not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God, and this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him a worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we'll learn that, he said we'll know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. This is an indispensable facet of what it means to be the image of God. But let me say this. It's not the only facet. The other aspect of what it means to be the image of God is that we we were made for community. The God that we worship is perfect, beautiful community as Father, Son, and Spirit. And therefore, when he declares, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, by necessity, human destiny had to be in diverse community. If God's beauty is seen in his Trinitarian life, we should expect that beauty to be reflected in the humanity that images him. While each person has immeasurable value and dignity because we are God's image, the most significant way we bear his image is in community. I'm going to quote from that same Dutch guy again because he put it this way. He put it so well. He says, the image of God is much too rich to be fully realized in a single human being, however richly gifted that human being may be. It's too rich, what it means. He says, he says, only humanity in its entirety, as one complete organism, summed up under a single head. He's talking about Jesus Christ as the head. As uh, um, spread out over the whole earth, as prophet proclaiming the truth of God, as priest dedicating itself to God, as ruler controlling the earth and the whole of creation. Only it is a fully finished image the most telling and striking likeness of God. He says, you want to really see the fully finished image of God? You have to have glory in view. You have to have the end of the story in view. You have to have all tribes and tongues and peoples and nations before the throne saying, worthy is the lamb to receive glory and honor and might. You have to have that in view when you want to get a picture of what it means for humanity to be fully finished image of God. And so I have no idea how long I've been going so far. (laughs) Few more. Uh, Because these are are important. This is a man named Stephen Guthrie in his book, Creator Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the Art of Becoming Human. He says, one may think of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, more personally and creatively as an artist whose one subject is the Son, capital S-O-N and who's concerned to paint... Countless portraits of that subject on countless human canvases using the paints and brushes provided by countless human cultures and historical situations. It is Jesus, the incarnate Son of the Father, and none other, who the Spirit seeks to portray. And each portrait, he says, is successful and creative, not because it makes of him what he is not by forming him in our likeness and conforming him to our preferences and our predilections, but because it uses ever new cultural approaches and historical situations to bring out more of the infinite variety of saving truth that's in Jesus. In other words, we need actually to see the beauty of God's Uh, of of the cultural and ethnic diversity that God has given us and to see God's saving power working in various cultures and historical situations to grasp the infinite variety of saving truth that is in Jesus. Here's the problem. Here is the problem. Problem is our brokenness. This is a picture of a ziggurat mountain mountain. This is what the Tower of Babel would have looked like. This is from about uh, 1200 B.C. Um, and, and so Genesis chapter 11 is the last time humanity was all together in one big happy family. Genesis chapter 11 verse 1 says, right, the, the whole earth had the same language and spoke the same words. We were together, right? Well, we were together in our sinful rebellion. What's happening in Genesis? Genesis chapter 6 through 9 is the flood account. It's, the, it's a recreation account because of human sin, right? In Genesis 9, God reissues the command again to Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Genesis chapter 10, you have the table of nations, the sons, the children of Noah, and their generations, and where they are over all the earth. And so it seems like uh, humanity was obedient to God's command. But then Genesis 11 takes a look back to see how did Genesis chapter 10 happen? How did all these nations go over the face of all the earth? Humanity, God says, be fruitful and multiply Genesis 11 says the whole earth had one language that spoke the same words. And it says, and they migrated to the east, and they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its heights reaching to the heavens. They said, lest we be dispersed from here over the face of all the earth. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Humanity says, no, thank you. We're going to go right here and we're going to make a name for ourselves. That's what they said. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed from here over the face of all the earth. We were, the last time we were all united as a humanity, we were united in our sinful rebellion against God. And so God, in judgment and mercy, comes down to see the puny tower, <laughs> puny from his perspective, right? And he says, essentially... The Lord says, if I let this go on, there's no end to what they'll be able to do. There's no end to the depth of their sinful depravity. They will use If they use all of their genius and technological know-how to build this, right, to try to transgress the heavens, if I let them go unhindered, they will, they will sink to the depths. So the Lord confuses our language, right? Um, and it says in Genesis 11, from there... The Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So it's the Lord who moved us out over the face of all the earth. I call Genesis 11 the creation of ghetto living. From that point on, we get our values from our ghettos. The folk we are around who, and I don't mean, you know, communities living in in blight and poverty. I'm talking about these communities where my sense of who I am is completely dependent on what this ghetto is. My racial ghetto, my ethnic ghetto, my academic ghetto, my socioeconomic ghetto, my cultural ghetto. And the deal is, and I call it ghetto living because we now naturally distrust Oh, you're not like us. We, we know what it's really like to be people and human. Essentially, it's what we communicate. So if you really want to be um, um, the fullness of what you you need to just become like us, right? We are, we are divided. Dr. Alyssa Yukiko Whitebrock is a professor at Covenant College down in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. And she said this. She gave the commencement address in 2018. Uh, And she said this. She says, Sometimes we believe that dignity is a pie to be divvied up among us. We worry that if we grant dignity to one group's suffering or accounting of history, then there's less available for us. And she says, But this is foolish. We make God small when the reverse should be the case. For, after all, if Jesus is coming back to make all the sad things untrue, then the more sad things we know, the bigger Jesus must be to undo them. The cracks are already there, she says. Calling out the brokenness does not diminish Jesus' power. It magnifies it. Reality is, because of our ghettoization, our reinforced behaviors and ideas create cross-cultural barriers. And so if it's in our power, we just self-select. Where am I going to be the most comfortable? Who are my people? right. So uh, I'm going to do this first in three or four more slides. I, this is what happened. You don't give me a timer. I had no idea. <laughs> Here's the thing, because you have to see this. How does God respond to the ghettoization of humanity in Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel? Right? It's the Lord who confused our language the Lord so that we wouldn't understand each other because we were united in our sinful rebellion. And so He dispersed us over the face of all the earth. How does He respond? He responds in Genesis chapter 12 with the call of Abraham. Right, Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. Right, the Lord says to Abram, "Go from your country and your kindred to your father's house, to the land I'll show you, and I'll make you a great nation." I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here it is, in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth that I just had to break up and divide and fracture and send out, they'll be blessed because I'm going to bring them back together in your seed, Abraham. And we know that that's Jesus Christ. You understand the promise that God gives Abraham is about the reunion and reunification of humanity in Jesus Christ. We couldn't, he broke us up because of our sin and we were still in our sin so we couldn't bring ourselves back together. So if we were going to bring ourselves back together, he was going to have to do that too. This is the promise that he makes. The promise is for beautiful community that God is going to bring back into fruition. Listen, this is is the lips of Jesus, John chapter 17. Jesus starts his high priestly prayer at the beginning of John 17. Father, right, I've completed the work that you've given me to do. Now glorify me with the glory that I shared with you before the world was. And then he begins to pray, begins to pray for the 12, for his disciples. And he gets down to verse 20, and he says, I'm not only asking for these that followed me here on earth, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. For all those who will believe in me through that apostolic, that's us. And what does he pray? He says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, uh, that they may become one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you've loved me. How many times does he say one? One, 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 one. This is Jesus praying to the Father. And do you think the Father is not going to answer his prayer? And listen, he's not pulling this out of thin air. You understand what's on Jesus' mind is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's what's on his mind as he is praying for our oneness and unity, that we would reflect the oneness and unity that is our God, that we would really and truly be the image that we are, that we are created to be. And he says twice, do it, Father, so that the world might believe that you sent me. Do it, Father, so the world would know that you sent me. In other words, from the lips of Jesus, our most powerful testimony and witness to the world that he's real is our unity as Christians. Is our unity across all these lines of difference. And so I'm going to do two more, two more slides and stop. Uh, maybe three. Um, Dr. Christina Edmondson, um, she's a professor at Calvin College, and she, um, she made this statement in an article a few years back talking about our problem. This is, right, this is still the manifestation of our brokenness, of our cultural issues, right, of our divides. She says, instead of hearing the experience of the other and owning the consequences of our own cultural narcissism, we fast from different voices and turn to news outlets, places of worship, and friend groups that match and fertilize our biases. This approach ensures our entrenchment and entitlement. See, so this is what we do. This is the reality of our cultural moment. You think about our political divides. You think about our ethnic and social divides. You think about the impact of social media is not more community and conversation and understanding. It's the enlargement of your echo chamber, the people who agree with you. And so that everybody else is now uh, not simply a disagreeable, but they're now your enemy. (laughs) That we live in a culture of contempt. We see nothing good or redeemable in the people who don't agree with us. So, what is beauty in action? Last two slides. Um, In their book, Churches, Cultures, and Leadership, Mark Bronson and Juan Martinez make this statement about the church and our need. They say our capacities to understand each other, to share in work, and to hope require an increasing consciousness about our own worldviews and a commitment to listen to and walk under the influence of others. And they mean others who are different than we are. And they're talking about the church. They're talking about Christians now. And I'm just talking about any and everybody. And they say for many in the dominant culture, that means white people in America. He says, in which one element of the life world is entitlement, this can be a stressful experience. In other words, the reality is the norms still um, for for majority culture folks is that you don't have to necessarily come under the influence (laughs) um, and instruction of others who are not like you. And then they say, For those in the minority, here's the challenge. Trust. They say especially when the memories are saturated with wounds. This is the great challenge, right? But part of it is engaging this way. This is a uh, chart that a friend of mine and a mentor of mine, Dr. Carl Ellis, put together to say what we' are, what we are needing to pursue if we 're really going to pursue this unity and diversity cross cultural love and ministry, is having a comprehensive kingdom righteousness. He says he had these four pains, and part of the problem is in the various facets of the church, we overemphasize one of the pains, so for example, personal godliness is Uh, It's essentially personal piety, Uh, live right, right? Uh, 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 Live right individually. Uh, Personal um, justice is do right to your neighbor, right? As an individual, do right to your neighbor. Uh, Be right in terms of your own actions. Do right to your neighbor. And he says, look, here's the deal. This is where the majority culture church has most of its emphasis. Personal godliness, personal justice, the individual does right, the individual is does their devotionals, the individual is pious, and here's the thing, right? It's all inclusive. So it's not to say we don't emphasize personal holiness, right? But he says minority churches have had to by necessity understand social godliness and social justice, corporate godliness for the community and corporate justice. Right, And so we, the part of the challenge is we tend to be in balance in where we emphasize whether we are part of a dominant culture or a minority or subdominant um, culture. The challenge is to say, look, This is part of the reason why we need each other. (laughs) This is part of the reason why we need each other, right? Because circumstances and situations will will have us emphasizing certain aspects of this comprehensive kingdom righteousness. And we can be blind to the other aspects of it. And think we've we've got the sum total ourselves. When it's never that way. So... All right, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. Um, yeah, let's do that. All right, you want, to, <laughs> you want to start doing some? I have no idea. How long did I go? No, that was good. All right,
0: all right. So it's 8.30. Is this on? Okay. So uh, while you're thinking of your question, you probably already have it down, can you just give um, one very practical barrier that yeah. faces the church yes. today yep. to say, mm-hmm. hey, this – the pain and all the the biblical foundation is good, yeah. but here's here's the way it practically gets faced by Christ Community Church or mm-hmm. DC, Grace DC or however you would want to think about yep. that. I'll just pull up the slide, and uh, if you want to just raise your hand if you have a question. So, who's, who's got? Hold on before you a- answer. Who's got okay. a question? Come on. Okay. All right, so I'm going I'm to just get back here, you right. answer, and then we'll be ready for the next one. I'll question. start
1: with this first one as a basic thing. Um, I call, these are kind of four steps that I encourage. The first one is devoting to the doctrine. I'll do the first two. Devoting to the doctrine, meaning this theology of unity and diversity as a gospel imperative as something that we are called to as the people of God. It might look different. It might take different manifestations of it, but nobody gets a pass at pursuing reconciliation, right? So devoting to the first thing is, are we devoted to this as being aligned with the heart of God? Because it's too hard to do if you're not. It's impossible to do, In our own strength and effort, you will get weary and tired, even if you devote to it. And then the second thing is this. Probe the preferences. One of the things that churches don't do very often is recognize that we have a certain culture here as our church. Like We have a certain way of being and doing and living out the Christian faith. It's not necessarily ungodly, but it's just this is this is how this is how we are here, right? And we never, well, rarely never. My wife tells me never say never. Okay, We rarely. That's what happens. You're married 28 years, right? Your voice is always in your head. <laughs> you know, we, we, <laughs> we, we, we rarely um, <laughs> we rarely ask. Okay. What, why do we do the things we do the way that we do them? We just, we just go along, we're just going on. This is, how, this is how it is. Why do we do the things the way we do them? Um, and how are these things potentially barriers, hindrances to people who are not like us finding a real sense of belonging here? What are the ways in which we may actually in the way we are living out our Christian faith and worship and life, a barrier to people who are not like the majority here finding a real sense of belonging, right? That's a first, like that's a, before you you do, oh, let's go change and do this and try, it takes some reflection and question asking. (laughs) So that, you so that you grasp and say, okay, there's some stuff that we are doing that's not necessarily wrong, but we're just choosing to do it this way. We have the freedom to do so, and so we're choosing to do it this way. Um, but very often when we don't ask those questions, we baptize our choices as gospel truth. All right, I'll stop there.
0: Okay, so here's um, here are the... Um rules for asking a question <laughs> one your question has to be brief just say that to your neighbor brief, <laughs> brief. <laughs> brief your question has to be civil so just say that to your neighbor civil, civil. civil, civil. <laughs> all questions have to be in the form of a question <laughs> okay we've all come to hear Dr. Entz <laughs> We haven't come to hear you. We've come to hear you ask a question that he can answer, all right? So we all have a great story, but that's tonight your story is for your friend when you ride home, right? You're yeah. just going to ask a question, mm-hmm. all right? We're all good with that, so I'll get to you in one second. Here's the first question.
2: Is it Dr. Enns?
0: Yeah, uh, Inns.
2: Inns? Yeah. Uh Dr. Enns, um, First of all, tongue-in-cheek question, if I may. I hope that I am addressing a fellow fan of the Brooklyn Nets. Sort of.
1: <laughs> I left Brooklyn before the Nets came from You're New Jersey. You're killing me, man. So I'm rooting, me. I root for the Nets, but yeah. Okay.
2: Uh, Yankees
1: and Giants, for sure. But well, okay, yeah. I'm with you on that. <laughs>
2: um it, it, The question is, um, I'm wondering if you observe what I observe uh, on a national basis. Mm. Essentially, uh, if we were to uh, tune into most most any TV news uh, channel and listen to it for a while, Mm. we would get the sense that, Blacks uh, are really anti-white and and whites are really anti-black. But on a day-to-day basis, just living out our lives, um, I don't personally find, Mm. I I mean, I don't feel an antagonism toward blacks. I don't feel an antagonism from blacks. So do you see that same... Difference between what's portrayed in general Um, and what we live out uh, in our day-to-day
1: lives.
0: Great, thank you.
2: Great question. Uh, Thank you for that.
1: I I would say this: um, there is generally, you know, a sense of civility that people have towards one another, as opposed to open hostility in our in dealings in our interactions. But whenever you go deeper to to use that to, to the wounds, whenever you, the challenge becomes, when I really want to pursue reconciliation, when I really want to pursue unity, that unity is around truth, and that truth is often very painful. And that's where that's where the um, what might just be cordial. Interactions and not open hostilities become very difficult um, to maintain <laughs> um, when there's such deep disagreements that you end up finding. Right? So that's the, that's the shell. So I would agree with you in general. There's a general cordiality, general civility that you find with people and engagements. But when you start to go deep into the issues that, um, that are, surround, Race and ethnicity and justice, that's when it becomes much more stark.
0: Okay, so the deep disagreement, one of the clear places is going to be in 2020 in the election. Mm-hmm. So you got people on the right side of the aisle, people on the left side of the aisle, but they're all in the same church. Jesus, yes. What advice would you have uh, for us in terms of dealing with each other mm. in the midst of that mm-hmm. very stark, you know, yeah. and very it hits a wound somewhere in some yeah. way. So, yes. yeah. tell us about it. You're, this. You're, this is a big question, so we're sure. all waiting for a good answer here. <laughs> no pressure. No, no pressure.
1: Um, so, the church that, um, that I serve in DC, um, uh, so Grace DC, is uh, is our church. We have three congregations in three neighborhoods in the city, and uh, I particularly I attend with my family, Grace Mosaic which is one of the three. But you find this in all three congregations. I mean, we're in Washington, D.C., right? So we've got people on both sides of the political spectrum within the congregation, right? So this is a very real thing. See, there's a constant drumbeat and communication. What does it mean to center my identity on Jesus and not my political affiliation? What does that mean? It means not simply an idea but it means that i allow jesus to critique my political commitments and affiliations it means that i don't i don't baptize my politics as gospel that that i i i embrace the reality that in many ways jesus is too conservative for the conservatives and too liberal for the liberals and vice versa he 's too conservative for the liberals and too liberal for the conservatives he 's Jesus right and so and so this is a very it manifests itself in our congregation as we do life together and engage these topics um, with honesty so for example, this is just a practical thing that we uh, that we do we'll do these um, process and pray um gatherings once a month. Sunday evening, we'll come back for a process and pray over, um, over a topic that we think is resonating within the congregation or the culture, right? And so it'll, one of the elders will kind of lead that and we'll ask two people to kind of share and then we will have conversation around that topic. Um, we'll eat together and we will pray together. And we've, we've done the cross-racial adoption thing. We've done abortion. We've done politics. We've done, you know, um, interracial marriage, right? We, so and the point is finding ways to head on, to engage this head on without this fear because um, our trust, right, is that Jesus, because we have the spirit of Christ, we can actually do this and not separate. <laughs> we can do it and stay together. Right? So,
2: there
0: you go. Great. Thank you.
2: Uh, thank you, Dr. Inns, for your words. Um, my question is this. What are the main, what do you think are the main cultural issues that divide the white and the, and the black church in America?
1: Whew. <laughs> the main um, so let's just say, right, the the reason that there is a black church is because the white church wasn't faithful to the gospel. The reason we have a black church in America is because God was going to have a witness. <laughs> Slavery, racism, injustice, oppression was not going to stop God from grabbing people from every tribe and tongue <laughs> right and so and so one of the one of the realities and the challenges is um, and I think this is at a thirty thousand foot level is grasping the fact that the Black Church in America is maybe the oldest black controlled institution in the in the country a, able to be a place where that dignity and that worth was affirmed because it wasn't getting affirmed any place else right that that as an institution, even though it's just as diverse <laughs> theologically, right, sociologically, like there's all kinds of diversity denominationally. With the, 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 so, the, so even the black church is not a monolith, but just as, a, as an institution, that place where um, black dignity, black beauty, right, black is beautiful, was affirmed. Because the culture said, didn't say black was ugly, it said essentially black is useful. (laughs) Useful for labor, useful for for productivity. And a dignity outside of that, just being a human being. So now I think politics aside, all of these other issues, part of this, part of the challenge is, well, there's a and when I and it just happens when I talk to black pastors who pastor historic black churches there's in for for example in cities like DC gentrification neighborhoods changing there's a sense of concern like are we are we going to lose this institution like it has been a lifeblood for a whole people are we gonna lose this institution? So that's a major, like that's a major issue. Um because the other the other concern is that, you know, I'm just gonna say it, because this is how it's said to me, you know, when white folk come in, they're used to having their way and taking over and having control. Right? And so there's a fear that like, no, this has been the lifeblood for for an oppressed people. I think there's a way forward, but I think that is a major sticking point uh, when I talk to particularly uh, pastors of, uh, of, of black churches.
0: Great, great point. Whoa, now the hands are going <laughs> up. Okay, good. Um, how are we to view personal justice and
3: social justice? Uh, how, how should we consider that? Of course, we're going to do it from a biblical perspective.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you for that question. So, personal justice is essentially saying, "I'm committed to doing right, <laughs> right. I'm going to treat everybody right as a spiritual right. I'm a I in the, my decision making and how I treat my neighbor, I'm going to do right, right. The social justice aspect of it graphs where the church says, "Look, look." Um, it's looking at systems and structures that, that foster and promote injustice. It's also about loving our neighbors because it's also about saying who's on the receiving end of the systemic injustices, right? Um, and they are not being given opportunity to experience life and flourishing in the full as they are. So how do we speak God's truth into these social issues that have an impact on the lives of groups of people? So that's more than just, okay, let me preach uh, a good gospel to this individual so they do right on their job. They say, no, 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 I got to have eyes to see because sinners run governments and corporations and stuff, you'll get systemic issues out of that. And so eyes to see that and say, what would the Lord have us do to speak into that, to engage it well, right? And so, so anyway, okay, I'll stop there. Just
0: in, a, in, a, in any social justice topic, and it could be housing or, you know, it could mm-hmm. be uh, some sort of financial thing, or it could be education. Is, that the, is it the role of the church mm-hmm. as an institution to involve itself? Mm-hmm. Or is it the role of just individuals to say, I'm in the education department or I'm in this business. Mm-hmm. And it's not Paul Phillips' role as the pastor at Christ Community Church. Mm-hmm. It's Paul Phillips' role as a citizen just to do that. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Institutional make effort sense. or individual and effort?
1: And that's the conversation. I, I think it's a, I would say it's a both hand. Um, In the sense that, um, so uh, let me speak to my own denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, where we hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith together with its larger and shorter catechisms, right? As a faithful representation of the system of doctrine taught in Scripture. This um, 16th century um, document that was crafted in Westminster in England. And the larger catechism says, as a part of it, you know, you use, I don't know, 180-some questions or 190-some questions, but a big chunk of them are related to the Ten Commandments. And they'll ask the question, what are the duties required by this commandment? So they'll say, look, When you look at a commandment, it's not simply that it forbids a sin, but the opposite duty is required, right? So it's not just a passive thing, I have not done this, it's you shall do this, right? Um, And so it'll ask these kinds of questions. So the Ten Commandments, right, the first four commandments have to do with our duty toward God. Commandments five through ten have to do with our duty toward neighbor, so essentially the Ten Commandments, love the Lord your God with everything, love your neighbor as yourself. One through four, love God. Five through ten, love neighbor. Um, and the, conf- the confession or the catechism will say, this, this is the summary of the whole moral law. Which means this is not just, this is God's moral law, not just for his people, not just for Christians, but for everybody. This is the moral law of God. And then it will explicate in commandments 5 through 10, what are the duties required? What are the sins forbidden? right? Um, and my point here is if you read it, I'm not going to put it up, and, but all of those duties required, the overwhelming majority of those duties required in commandments 5 through 10 are social in nature. They are Public in nature, engaging, not just within the church. And so I always kind of ask this question, okay, so if it's the moral law of God, um, and it's for everybody, including those in legitimate governing authority in the civic arena, who's going to tell them they're violating God's law? How are they going to know? who's going to call them to account when they are not when they're not practicing their position or whatever they're exercising their authority in line with God's law that's actually our responsibility as a church to call it out now it doesn't necessarily mean that as a pastor I got to go marching in the streets doesn't mean I can't but it doesn't necessarily mean that but but if I grasp this reality that God's law, his moral law, is for all of humanity, and, and as his people, as the church, we get it because we have his spirit. We have a responsibility, I would say, to be a prophetic voice in the society, in the culture, calling out unrighteousness and injustice. So, Great.
2: Thank you. you. Hi. Um, I have a question. Uh, what type of encouragement or exhortation would you give towards somebody who allows their ethnic Gnosticism to become some type of barrier towards pursuing deeper connections within the body or maybe even just attempting to get to know other people because they don't think they're going to connect or understand right. life, that how they do?
1: Yeah. So you're asking what would I recommend if someone's is experiencing their ethnic identity as a barrier to real connection? Um, so yeah, this, that's a great question. It's important one. One of the things that, um, that I realize and have to commit to is that this kind of conviction, uh, has to come from, from the Lord. Like, and I don't, it's it's arrogant it's hubris for me to impose it on somebody else in terms of wherever they might be in their journey how the lord might be bringing them along but if there is a sense of desire to say you know what i do want to cross these lines and these barriers but i'm hesitant for whatever reason i'm i'm hesitant um for trust reasons because of because of wounds, whatever the case may be, um, I'd say two two things. One, got to be in prayer. And two, you got to be in in some type in community where you have affirmation. So, meaning, very often I will, you know, I'm in the PCA, right? I said this to um the pastors and ministers at lunch today like the PCA has 4900 pastors in the denomination about 52 are black so I'm one of about 52 out of 4900 about 1% wow. <laughs> All right so um so like I'm here cuz God put me here <laughs> not cuz <'cause> it's easy <laughs> But I also know in this pursuit, in these, that I need spaces of affinity. Meaning, I need, I do need some spaces, even as I try to pursue reconciliation across lines of the difference, where there's mu- there's much more cultural comfort at times. Like I, I gotta have that. I because it's, because it's also life giving to me to give me the strength to actually engage <laughs> in the places of difference it's, it's much more challenging if i'm if if i want to pursue it but i but I'll, but i don't have any real spaces where i'm being affirmed culturally and ethnically that that's a and i don't know the particular situation you're referring to but but that is a need that we have because we do have that need to be affirmed in our in our ethnic identity, right? So, I okay, don't know if do that's you, another question. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I, I don't know if there there might be somebody under twenty in here, but I'm not sure. Um, but I spend most of my life so far in these um, many many years mm-hmm. working with. Um, adolescents and teenagers Mm. so I'd like to know what you would have me or Mm. us to do uh, for the next generation because Mm -hmm. it's one thing for me to remember going to a segregated school to Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Wilmington 10 Mm -hmm. whatever it might be but Mm -hmm. what what can we offer them in terms of uh, the future
1: yeah thank you for that question I mean I I think about that Myself, we have four children now. Three of them are adults. My youngest is 15, so we're still in that formative stage. And here, here's the thing: um, they're they're getting messages about diversity from the world all the time. They they are, but um, but. The, the world can't answer the question why um, and give enough grounding to say this is, you pursue this even though it's, even when it gets hard, (laughs) right? Um, And so, uh, so one, helping them understand that Unity and diversity, growing across lines of difference, loving neighbors who are different than you is at the heart of God. It's at the heart of God's gospel. Like we don't get to be, we don't get to be in God's family apart from Jesus Christ reconciling us with God. Right. And then having us pursue reconciliation with one another. So just like I would say for adults, just like children, a deeply Rooted, um, robust understanding of what the scripture has to say about it, and young they can get it, right? I mean, they can get it. You can put, you can show the divides, Jew and Gentile, in the scripture. You can show Galatians uh, uh, th- uh, three and Colossians two and Greek and uh, and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, that that that. You can say, Paul could only say, here there's not Greek and Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, because there were those people in the church. He wasn't making it up. They were there. So he's pointing them to unity in Christ. And so I would say, point them, ground them in a robust understanding of God's word so that they can understand the why of diversity and then, Un, not just understand the why, but then be able to discern where, because the world is always going to go kind of off the rails and say any and everything is okay, right? And they have to be rooted in what God says. Yeah.
3: Good. yeah. Thank you for taking the questions. Yeah, was, uh, actually, my parents did the same migration that yours mm. did. Uh, and my wife and I migrated from Harlem huh. to Wilmington. Okay. <laughs> so Look at that. So, Look at that. So, so that really gets to my question. Um, when we came to Wilmington, one of the things that we wanted to do was to search out a church. Mm. Uh, and we decided that we were going to see all churches, all denominations. Mm. Well, not all denominations. Yeah. Because we wanted to be one that was of um, no denomination. Yeah. Um, and so we went to... "Quote unquote white churches, black churches, and so on and so forth." And the one thing that we found was, some of the b- black churches we went to, we would see white people, mm-hmm. but none of the white churches we went to would we see black people. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to know what your take is on mm-hmm. that, and and
0: why do you think that is?
3: Yeah.
0: Whew. Um, You're just getting the softball questions right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um. You know, I I I think we don't um really grasp how deeply our ghettos shape and form us, like in terms of how I'm shaped and formed to understand not just myself but my community, who I am, who are my people. Um and so, like I said in that book, like if it's in our power, we self select and there there's in so two things I'll say one um there's this divide you there has to be a reason like the spirit of God has to move you to want to change to see something different, and so you can exist so Right, white churches for the most part, and they can exist They're not going to falter and die, and all of a sudden not have the funds, right? Um, so they can exist in the same mono-ethnic um, way, seemingly indefinitely. And so, what would be the impetus to change? The impetus would, to change. Has to be has to come from the Spirit of God, right? And then two, um, very often, from another perspective, you could say, okay, well, why don't Black people go to the church? <laughs> right? So, okay, why 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 is the church all white? In the, from one perspective, why is the church not trying to engage and pursue people who are different than others? But then other way, why aren't those folk coming? Right? I'm sorry.
3: Yeah. Okay. I meant to say that when I would visit white black
1: churches, churches, you'd see some black people. I
3: see black
1: people when you see but in black, black churches. You don't see. I don't see white. Gotcha. See okay. People. okay. All right. All right. A little bit nervous. That's okay. Um, yeah, but it's the same answer in the sense of identity and formation, like the 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 I am. Um, when we were planting our church, City of Hope is what we called it, um, and we had a chance to talk to some university uh, um, students at a nearby college campus. There were a few blacks in that um, in that um, in that group, and we would ask the question. We say, you know, okay, so why do you think it's still the case? that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is, a, is the most segregated hour in America. Why is that still true, right? Um, and one of the black students simply said this, because we want to rest. Mm. And what he meant was, right, I've got to navigate through white space all week. All week. I've got to put on the coat. I've got to do the code switching. I, got to d- I just need a break. We just need a break from that to To be comfortable, let the hair down, and so, so that is a that's a very real factor. Um, and then there's also what I said earlier: the issue of identity that 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 the black church has and they're connected these reasons has been a haven, um, has been a place of affirmation for. Uh, for African Americans from the beginning, and so it's it has this whether or not it's still all of that today. That's the legacy, and it still right that, and it still has that um, that sense that that history is still very much present in people's minds, right? And so um, and so I think that that those two things, um, one, the need for affinity and affirmation, and rest from trying to navigate life in a majority white world and context, um, and this place of affirmation. I think those are they're just strong. They're just strong uh, uh, factors. And then let me just say this last thing. But, or and, that still does not remove the need to be active in pursuing reconciliation. It just might have a different manifestation. So it might not be that the all-black church becomes 50% black, 50% white as you pursue it. But you've got to still, in my opinion, say, Christ has called us to this, to, to crossing lines of division. What does it look like for us to do that? Right? So...
2: Um how have you felt and seen racial tension in your life and how have you seen reconciliation there or maybe not seen reconciliation
1: mm. Oh okay so um I will I'll tell uh, my the tension in my own life since coming to faith um in Christ is really maybe twofold. The first was, I would say, a few years back, um, you know, when you're an uber minority, (laughs) like 1%, (laughs) right, um, there can be frustrations. And I I remember there was a point in time where I was just kind of at my wits end and I said, uh, I'm just going to be free here. I said to myself about my own denomination, I said, these white folk ain't never going to get it. Like, what am I doing? Why am I here? <laughs> you know? Um, and then the next one was, like, well, where am I going to go? Right? Like, there was a sense of conviction. So the, the resolution of it was the Lord convicted me um with these with this thought do i really believe that god is sovereign the lord was saying to me as like i was interpreting it this way do i believe he made a mistake putting me where he put me did he err do i believe that he erred and that came to me to be a point of conviction <laughs> say no god you don't you do all things well you don't make mistakes, and so what that means is, therefore, you put me here for a purpose and a reason. Um, and I am right I am committed then, right there was my own personal confession and repentance for a complaining spirit <laughs> um, and a willingness to serve however he would have me serve. In this branch of his church, to say okay now i'm I'm open, okay, I'm here, whatever you would have me do that led me to much further engagement on a denominational level, much more um, close friendships and ties with some of my um, my white pastors uh, who are close close friends now um, and then there's you know uh, here's an example of where it didn't work out so well. When we planted the church, we planted it as a, as a dual pastor model. So uh, I partnered with uh, a white pastor in our denomination. We we started the church plant. Uh, it's hard to plant a church with two pastors financially, uh, but we were trying to make it work. Got about two and a half years in and um, and it just wasn't working um, we had deep financial issues um, but the financial issues were masking the relational issues that he and I had uh, because both of us had a sense of call to senior pastor we were church plant Um. And so, what ends up happening is, we had to confront that reality. Um, that, in um, our church made a, our our elders a session made a decision. They said, um, "Well, let me back up. When we came together, he we had a different difference, a fundamental difference that we weren't aware of. He saw." our cross-racial pastoral partnership in planting this church as essential to the vision of doing a cross-cultural, multiracial church. I saw it as a nice-to-have, but not essential. And so when we got to this breaking point, for him, breaking up this pastoral relationship meant the dissolving of the vision <laughs> and for me I was like what are you talking about no that's not no it, this was always something that was good and we think could help but this wasn't essential to the vision right and so so you know he and I still talk from time to time when we see each other we're not, we're not these close you know uh, co-laborers uh, and friends it just right sometimes that happens it doesn't, it doesn't work um, so anyway,
0: there you go, Erwin. Thank yeah. you first of all for being here tonight. You're welcome. <clears throat> we live in the American South and we live in wilmington north carolina mm-hmm. and There are two deep wounds that we've talked about tonight that that have happened in both of those places mm-hmm. and I think sometimes when I consider reconciliation. I just see yeah. those as such big topics. I'm not sure mm. incrementally how to begin to attack them. Could you give us some yeah. wisdom on that? Yeah.
1: Um, it, it is always, it is always, always, always contextual and locally discerned. <laughs> So, like, I put up those four, vote to the doctrine, probe the preferences, count the cost, toast to the truth. I could go through all of those. But the, the church in the place has to discern what does faithfulness to this look like for us. It has to be okay, who are we? <laughs> who, who are we, right? Um, how did we become this way? Who are our neighbors that are different that God is calling us to love in Jesus' name? Right? We've got to ask some questions. It can't be this necessarily this grand campaign of saying, we're going to we're going to uh, uh take on this campaign to make reconciliation happen in Wilmington, North Carolina. Right? Maybe if enough God's people and his churches are committed. <laughs> you might see some, right? But, but, for example, Christ Community Church has got to discern what does it look like for Christ Community Church to be pursuing this, right? What are the, what are the barriers that are here among us, right? We got to do introspection and reaching out. It's not, enough. So it's not enough to say, oh, let's go do this, that, and the other thing. There has to be a deepening self-awareness of who you are as a congregation, who you are as a church, just like it would be for me as an individual, right? And this, is, this is people who do cross-cultural work will tell you, if you want to grow in, in cross-cultural competency, uh, and ability. It's not simply about learning more about somebody else. It's also learning more about yourself. Right. So that that aspect of the process is a step that's very often neglected. Um, sometimes you, you. Sometimes I would let me just put it this way. Sometimes you're forced into it. Because if you try to do work and engage people who are different than you, you'll be forced to say, oh, there's a lot of difference. I wonder what's going on, right? It's better to start there, to say, who are me? Who are we? What's going on? What are our commitments culturally? How do we identify, right, those cultural commitments? How do we form? And then how do we, you know, even in order to do that, how do we form some healthy relationships, Right. So I was at right a lunch with I don't know, what did it, about eight or ten pastors at the lunch, different um racial backgrounds, different denominational backgrounds, right? But committed to 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 being in relationship with one another. Right. Um, that's not an end point, <laughs> right? But that's a necessary point. Right. And being willing, therefore, to say, okay, if we've got some trust, help me see what I'm not seeing. Like, I know it's going to hurt, but help me see what I'm not seeing. Right. We've got to have that willingness to embrace the pain of that. Right, so that's, in, that's, that's some self-work, not just reaching out to others.
0: Yeah. We're going to go for about five minutes so that you can just inform your bladder of that information. <laughs> <laughs>
2: thank you um I, I first have to say that and i know I'm not making statements but i i have to say uh, thank you for for this um tonight is mm-hmm. it's very very special it it really is um and and it goes right into my question mm-hmm. do you think that this meeting starting here mm-hmm. is uh it's more important mm. that it started here as opposed to a black church. Mm. Um and and I asked that question. Mm-hmm. You probably know why I asked mm-hmm. that question. So mm. you know what? I'm just gonna let you answer the question.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, it depends. It's right. Um so I look at this from two angles. Um, One, um, there is, I'm seeing this kind of all over wherever I go, there is a growing desire among majority white churches to start dealing with this issue and start pursuing racial reconciliation. Um, So there's a heart there a growing heart there that i'm seeing and and it is and it's and it's a good and a healthy thing when that heart is acted upon right when there is a step taken in that direction right um and a step taken in that direction most particularly and i don't always see this but i always try to emphasize it with humility to say Um, When a majority white church takes a step in this direction to say, we're not coming in as the power brokers calling the shots on how this is supposed to work. We're coming in as learners in humility, knowing that we are, we actually are at a deficit because we don't have these relationships. That's a different way of entering into The conversation and entering into the engagement, right? Um, And so, so it's so yes. In one sense, it is is, it is very significant, um, and important that it took place here, particularly given Wilmington's history, right? Um, Particularly given 1898 and the, the the ripple effects that are still. Being felt uh, in this in this city um, because I just boy that when I talk to and engage black churches that issue of trust is I mean it's a, it's a strong strong barrier. <laughs> um, um, I have a friend, um, the church, uh, the Baptist church. That, that my wife and I came to faith at. The current pastor is a close friend of mine. He's been pastor there now 10 years. And New Bethel, is a, this year, will be 117 years old. So it's a, like a D.C. fixture. Uh, Dexter is the fifth pastor of that church, right? And so they stay a long time. Um, but in his recasting the vision and values of New Bethel, he included intentional reconciliation in their core values, right? And that's not common (laughs) for historic black churches to take that step. But, right, uh, but he's still, even in that, he's still saying, okay, I see this as a gospel priority, but I'm still a little cautious. (laughs) I'm still a little cautious in how, we pursue it, which is why I'm glad that he and I are in relationships. So what we did, this is an event we did uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, and this will lead me to, all right, I'll tell you about the event and then what the event was around. So we did what something called a clergy story table event um, in D.C. We invited a diverse group of pastors, ethnically and racially diverse denominationally diverse, um, um, around um, a dinner gathering. So there was a table, a round table in the middle where the clergy sat. I facilitated the conversation, and we had invited guests in circles around. They were listening in on the conversation. So everybody got to eat, and I facilitate this conversation, and we're we're talking about... um, Race, justice, and the church. We have white, black, Latino, um, male, female, right? And it was, and not everybody at the table is fully in <laughs> on it. But we, cr- we tried to create a situation where we could bring the issues to the surface um, in a way that, was helpful and hopeful, where there was trust and vulnerability, right? So that now people can say, okay, um, where do we go from here? What do we do um, with this? So I bring that up because um, my friend Dexter was one of the pastors, right? But but getting to the place to be willing to be in that kind of a conversation is a is a journey. So I put it this way in my experience, the trajectory to the table for white um, churches, m- pastors, ministers, and black pa is different, right? It's a longer trajectory, I found, to get uh, black churches to the table for this conversation uh, because of the history. So uh, let me say this, and I know we're about to, to wrap up. I, I, that clergy story table event is um, was a part of our training weekend for the Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission. I haven't talked about it at all, but we have um, trifolds and, and postcards out there. This is the work we're committed to, striving to equip churches that have this kind of heart with, as we say, the competence and the confidence to welcome others the way Christ welcomes us, That's especially across lines of difference. And so we do that by... Forming um, cohorts we say you heard me say earlier that this the answers are always contextual right they 're always who are we where are we you 've got to discern for yourself what faithfulness to this looks like, and this is not a short term project it 's not a quick solution that we could just do you know a five week um, small group Bible study or one sermon series right and we 've got it it 's about this is the trajectory of our church from now um, until Jesus comes back. So we're going to take the slow walk. So we we create um, these cohorts where churches participate by sending two to four people to be in a cohort, uh, and we've created a three-year curriculum because we said this has got to be a long commitment um, to bring you into an experience that helps you kind of discern for yourself what faithfulness looks like. So that clergy story table was part of our cohort training weekend. So we do every six months, the cohort will have a training weekend with us in DC. And in the five intervening months, the cohort will will participate in webinars and other instructional content. And they, the participants, they develop practicums for their churches that answer the question, what do we do here? Like we're learning this. Now what do we, how do we take that? What do we do at our church? How do we apply this here? And so, um, so this is not simply just a commercial for our cohorts. It's to say, to, re, to emphasize that the that this is not about some quick fix to the issue. It's about a long-term trajectory. It is about a commitment that this is close to God's heart, so we're going to move in this direction, right? And we're going to trust the Lord to be shaping and forming us along the way, and there's no way to do it without messing up.
0: Okay, one more quick question and a quick answer.
1: All right, quick answer. Now he's he's putting it on me, quick answer. (laughs)
2: You sort of answered it already, but there's, it's a two-part question. One, where in D.C. is your church located? And two, how are you dealing with and working on this cross, cross-cultural mission with churches like the Washington Cathedral, the National City Christian Church, New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, and the
3: First Baptist Church?
1: Yeah. So, first part. Grace, D.C., we have three congregations, Three, one downtown, which meets in Chinatown, one in the Petworth, Grace Meridian Hill meets in the Petworth area, and then Grace Mosaic meets in um, Brookland uh, area of D.C. So we're one church, three congregations. Each congregation has their own pastors and the like. And so as a church network, we are committed to Um, pursuing cross-cultural mission and love in our city um, and are doing it in practical ways internally as we shape and form our congregation. Um, And we're working with churches. So we may not be working with those churches in particular uh, and of those that you've named. Did you say National Christian Church? I don't remember which. Anyway, Yeah, um, so there are churches that we've got some working ministry relationships with, Christian organizations that we've got working um, relationships with, Um, but not necessarily every church because not necessarily every church is going to embrace (laughs) this pursuit, (laughs) right? Um, Or even affirming, so so the Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission Yes, we are Ministry of Grace D.C., but we say, look, um, here's the deal. Our, our statement of faith as a ministry is the Nicene Creed, right? So if you can affirm the Nicene Creed, <laughs> we can work with you, right? So that means we work across denominations. Um, and so I don't know those if we've got any active engagements with those churches you mentioned in particular, but there are plenty of others that we're doing. Um, ministry with,
0: yeah. Okay, let's give it up for Irwin. Thank Entz. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, he w- he would not tell you this, but he w- in the presbytery there's uh, um, assemblies that they get together sort of in a regional way, and then they have a national presbytery. And every year somebody gets to be the president. They call it the moderator, but mm. it's the CEO of the whole PCA, of the whole 4900, and the first African-American who ever was the moderator was Irwin Entz. All right, so I'm going to ask him to pray for us. He's going to be preaching here tomorrow, so mm-hmm. some of you folks, and I'm, I'm not looking at anybody <laughs> particular, I'm just saying, you're welcome to come, 830 and 11, and, uh, and uh, yeah. he'll stay up here, and he'll be here all night to answer your <laughs> questions. All right, would you pray for us, brother? Yes, I will pray. And let me, one last thing, because I
1: would be remiss if my, uh, my publisher would, would uh, slap me on the wrist. If I didn't mention the fact that I have a book coming out this summer titled uh, The Beautiful Community: Unity, Diversity in the Church at its Best. So, uh with InterVarsity Press. So you can I'll send you information on that. You can let folks know about that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you're good and your mercy endures forever. You are faithful from generation to generation. And we praise your name. I thank you for every soul Uh, In this place here tonight, Lord, I thank you um, for uh, the heart to pursue reconciliation across lines of difference, the heart and the desire for us to be the church um, as you desire us to be, to be a faithful witness to the reconciling power of your spirit. And so, Lord, would you bless not just us individually, would you bless every church represented In this place, would you bless, Lord, even this city and the churches of this city um, to to grow in an active pursuit of one another. Unity and diversity, loving you, loving neighbors, strengthen us for this, Lord. Give us uh, the the spirit-empowered perseverance that we need and endurance that we need in order to make it. Do this for your glory. Do it for our good. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Amen.